Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Vice Guide to Right Now, your inside look into the best of vice. It's Friday, April 5th. I'm Sophie Casas. Today, we're talking about New York City's new plan to initiate congestion pricing. New York legislators just passed the annual state budget, and it includes a controversial plan to implement congestion pricing. It's billed as the central business district tolling. But there are still some key details missing, like the specific cost of tolls and taxes and budget allocation. But we do know that it'll charge drivers as they pass 60th Street in Manhattan. And it will include exemptions for those who make less than $60,000 a year. Still, a big question remains. Will it exempt professional drivers and other vulnerable populations? We've got vices on Kita Rao and Caroline Haskins on the story. Welcome back on the podcast, guys. Hi, Caroline. Hi, Ankita. Hey. Hi. Let's talk about congestion pricing. How does it work and what are its goals in New York City? Congestion pricing, put very simply, is the idea that cars should pay to enter a higher density area or higher traffic area. It's been implemented in cities like London and Stockholm. um, And the goal is to have fewer cars on the road, have an easier flow of traffic, and usually to use the revenue that you get from the toll that cars pay to pay for something else that the public needs. And just to be clear, when you say the goal is to have fewer cars on the road, we're talking about traffic and congestion, but we're also talking about emissions, right? Yes, it's both an environmental and infrastructure policy. So my question is, why now? What's the history of New York trying to implement different forms of congestion pricing and why hasn't it worked in the past? Yeah, so congestion pricing in different forms has been on the table in New York for a couple of decades, even before action around climate change has reached this urgency that it has now, uh, traffic and congestion has just been a big problem. And Cuomo's been trying to get congestion pricing passed in the city budget for, uh, he he tried last year as well. But this year, the New York State Legislature flipped, and now they have a Democratic majority. So now they sort of have the people in the places that they need in order to, you know, get it passed in the way that they did. Yeah. So, Ankita, you mentioned revenue, that comes from congestion pricing. I'm curious how much New York thinks it's going to generate and then what its plan is for that money. It's hard to say just because the way that the policy will actually play out, there's still a lot of key pieces of it missing. The exact sort of numbers here are still being crunched. But for now, um, they're expecting that the city will make about $25 billion in revenue, not just from congestion pricing, but from a combination of that and a couple of other policies and taxes that were put into place. And at least a billion in the next few years 
from congestion pricing is meant to go into this lockbox, they call it, for the MTA, which is our subway system here in New York, and be used for repairs and maintenance of the subway system, which if anyone in New York and maybe in the area knows, our system is both amazing and very old and problematic and and doesn't work a lot of times and so desperately needs a revamp. And so to add to that, the office of the governor has previously said that congestion pricing could raise around $15 billion, and that's put in context with an estimate that subway repairs could cost about $22 billion. But again, both of these figures come with these uncertainties because we don't know the exact price extent exemptions that could come from congestion pricing. And also there's sort of differing estimates on exactly how much MTA repairs could cost because $22 billion seems to be sort of on the low end, but it's the figure that the office of the governor has put out there. Yeah, there's a lot that we still don't know about this. But one thing that we do know is that there's been both serious support for congestion pricing in New York and also some pretty serious opposition. So can you tell us about sort of both sides and what people are in support of and then what are the critics afraid of? A lot of times when you talk to urban planning and transportation academics, a lot of them will say congestion pricing is great. We should all be supporting this. Also, people like grassroots organizations that are advocating for subway repairs, for the most part, they're also in favor of this. They're saying, we need these repairs. We need a way to pay for it. Why not put in this fee and direct this to the system that everyone is actually relying on, which is the subway? But then you also have other populations like the like the New York Taxi Drivers Alliance, uh, which is um, a taxi workers union who are saying that we already have this smaller version of congestion pricing that targets taxi drivers specifically. So this is something that that actually went into effect in February. And they have to pay a 275 surcharge to operate in central Manhattan. And they're saying, this is hurting our bottom line. This should go away. And yet we're also talking about congestion pricing that could come universally to the city. We do know that people who make under $60,000 a year would be exempt, but by all indications, it seems like professional drivers would still have to pay this fee in the final version, but we don't. We don't have the exact details, but there is resistance to congestion pricing as we have it right now. So other than the exemption for people who make less than $60,000 a year, are there any other protections that are going to be put in place to um, either protect or help working class people who do, for whatever reason, need to drive in order to get in and out of the city? Right. So we don't know, other than the exemption of making under $60,000 a year, we don't really have the details about other types of exemptions. But one of the big questions here is if this congestion pricing would sort of put this incentive in place to not drive your car into the city, what other options are going to pop up and how will that affect city life in that area? Like, I just got a press release the other day. I sent I, I sent it over to Ankita. It was this private company that's saying, when congestion pricing comes into place, 
we're a private company and we're going to offer this service that transports people around the city or transports people to their nearest subway stop. So one of the big questions that's coming around with congestion pricing is do we have the regulations in place to respond to private players that are going to come into the space and try to sweep up drivers and play to certain demographics in that city. And certain experts have said, no, we don't even have the regulation in place to respond to Lyft and Uber and all of those other private companies. And yet there's these sort of unintended consequences that could pop up and potentially affect life for people living in areas on the outskirts of cities. And I'll just add that I think there's this idea that anybody driving into the city is wealthy. Like if you're living in the suburbs of Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, and commuting into the city, people just tend to think that's more of an upper income commute. But like Richard Brodsky pointed out in the piece, he's an assemblyman, um, a former assemblyman for the state of New York. There's a lot of people on the outskirts that are going to be impacted by this, that even if they do make a little bit more than $60,000 for a whole family living off of that income in a state that's as expensive as New York, that's not a lot of money. So these are firefighters, nurses, teachers, and transport systems in New York don't get everywhere and they don't get to people on time. And and even if the subway is maintained, it's not clear that it will be expanded. So like Caroline said, there's a lot of these people that will not only be impacted and and maybe be pushed further into economic stress, but also are really vulnerable to these private companies coming in to propose these uh, sort of Band-Aid solutions that may or may not hurt them more. So let's talk about other cities who have implemented similar plans. I mean, New York is very specific, and it's the only city in the U.S. that is proposing to do this right now. But you mentioned other cities internationally, London and Stockholm are two of them who have implemented different forms of congestion pricing. And what have the results been like there? Um, Did we see successes, failures, and how do we then translate that to a city like New York? So if we look at London as a sort of case study, in the initial years that congestion pricing was passed uh, a little bit over 10 years ago, the policy worked really well. There were a lot fewer cars in the city center. There were more public buses on the roads, more bike lanes put in, and uh, the tube got a little bit better, and emissions dropped as well. So we saw the intended effects of congestion pricing happen very quickly and very effectively. What happened a few years after that is that London had initially exempted rideshare and private rideshare companies from their policies. So Uber and Lyft and that kind of thing, although I don't think Lyft was there. So Uber and those kind of companies were still allowed and to sort of operate as usual. And and so those actually had a big uptick. And so then the traffic started increasing again because more people were using those private rideshares. More recently, London has realized that and moved to sort of go back on that um, because they're realizing a lot of the public buses they put on the road were empty now and people weren't biking like they wanted them to. And so they've had to sort of counteract that and balance it again. But they did notice that the congestion pricing worked with the caveat that without the proper regulations, it can backfire. Right. Yeah. And 
One example that certain people have brought up as this certain success story, so to speak, of congestion pricing is is Stockholm. But the question is when, especially when we're considering places like New York and places in the United States, how do these populations compare? And I guess when you're thinking of a place like Stockholm, part of the reason that it's been so successful there and also why we can't necessarily apply those lessons here is that their population is kind of like homogeneous, I guess, so to speak, like economically, culturally, the city politics and the city composition, it's just like it's different than New York. So it's just not necessarily going to apply in the same way. But also, it's important to consider like the cultural factors that could like make congestion pricing either work or not. Like what makes congestion pricing even a possibility in the United States just is sort of a non-starter in other countries. Like we can look to places like like China and cities like Beijing. They've tried to they've tried to introduce congestion pricing, but there's been this resistance there because there's this idea that congestion pricing is regressive. Now that's sort of the concern in New York, right? There's this fear that it's unfairly going to target working class people. And, you know, with the right exemptions, it could potentially avoid that. But in China, there's this, according to, to one of the, the experts I, I spoke to, Guo Dong, he said that in certain cities, you have systems like the license plate lottery, which means that if you even have a license plate to drive in the city in the first place, you have to go through a lottery system. And they also have this rotating day system in certain cities where if your license plate ends in an even number or an odd number, you can or can't drive into the city on certain days. And the idea is that this regulates traffic and this regulates congestion in a way where the effects aren't distributed economically. It's random. It's lottery-based. The fear with congestion pricing there, for the most part, is that it would be, again, the fear is that it would be regressive. Now, in the U.S., we're sort of, we're, we're looking through different options to try and make sure that that's not the case. But then even if we're looking at what's worked in China and trying to bring that to the U.S., I mean, you can sort of imagine the response to people that would even consider going through a lottery system. People would say, you know, I don't want to do that. That's affecting my freedom. So it's just, you have to consider how people are going to respond to these policies and like the particular like cultural and political conditions that are in the background. So it seems like if New York does implement congestion pricing in a way that takes into account all of these necessary regulations to make sure that it's sort of ethical and affecting people positively rather than negatively, it seems like it could become a model for other cities in the U.S. Do you see that happening? Yeah, definitely. I think that um, there are other cities in the country that have been eyeing congestion pricing. Los Angeles, famous for its terrible traffic. Uh, San Francisco, famous for its terrible infrastructure. A lot of these cities are wondering if they could also benefit from a policy like this. And in that way, I think New York's sort of a guinea pig because what happens here and and the impact here and, and how congestion pricing plays out may be sort of the biggest indicator of what other cities decide to do. Well, thanks, guys. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Thank you. Thanks, Sophie. Make sure to read the full story at motherboard.vice.com. That's it for now. 
Thanks so much for listening, and tune in again on Monday for another Vice Guide to Right Now.